If you have a Bible, um, Lisa's going to come read to us our passage from Mark chapter 15. Thanks, Lisa. So the reading is from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. Um, And in the Blue Church Bibles, it can be found on page 1022. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Thank you, Lisa. Well, please keep that passage open. Let's come to the Lord in prayer as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, we read in your word that the written scriptures we have before us are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we admit so often we stumble around in darkness and we need your help to understand these words and what they mean for our life, but to live our lives as you intended. So please, by the power of your spirit, would you speak into each of our hearts now? Please be our great teacher. And please, would we not leave here unchanged as we hear your voice today? Amen. Well, given that the sun's out this morning, it's a beautiful day, we're going to begin with a little awareness test. There's a short video clip um, that's going to be played. I just want you to watch it with beady eyes. Pay very careful attention. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? That was an old, uh, an old advert um, to keep cyclists safe. I don't know if any of you spotted the moonwalking bear. Some of you are still looking completely confused. Uh, I can assure you there was a moonwalking bear um, dancing across the stage. It's funny though, isn't it? When you're looking for something that you think will be familiar, um, it's easy to miss everything else, isn't it? And that, 
I think that's often the case with some of the really familiar stories in the Bible, particularly uh, the stories of Christmas, the story of Easter that are really familiar to us. And we've, if you're joining us today, we're, we're jumping into a series we've been doing where we've kind of slowed down in Mark's gospel, chapters 14 through to 16. And we're looking very carefully at a very familiar story to help prepare our hearts for Easter. And we've come today to uh, chapter 15 in Mark's gospel and to the reading that we had read earlier. As I preach through some of these and as I've heard others preach on them, uh, two things have really struck me in, in the last few weeks. The first is I've been reminded afresh of um, the divinity of Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And as we look through Mark's gospel, which we're in, uh, we see time and time again, don't we, how Jesus proves that he is divine. He says and does things that only God can do. He wakes a dead girl and gives her new life. He calms a storm with a word. He casts out evil spirits. Only God can do that. And Jesus proves that he's divine. But the thing that struck me this year particularly as we've been preparing is not just the divinity of Christ, but also his humanity. That the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God. He can do everything God can do because he is God. But he's also man. Uh, You'll know those words in the book of John's gospel. Uh, The word, speaking of Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or you'll think of the great words in Philippians chapter 2. Though being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing, taking on the likeness of a servant and being found like a human man. And so it's amazing words that speak of Jesus being divine, but humbling himself and taking on flesh and blood like you and me uh, to walk this earth. Uh, And as I reflected on the humanity of Jesus over the recent weeks, one of the things that's really struck me afresh is just how misunderstood the Lord Jesus was. Just reflect again at some of the sermons we've had in recent weeks. Go back in your mind to chapter 14. And this woman, remember, she understands who Jesus is and she falls down at his feet and she anoints Jesus with this really expensive perfume. And remember how the disciples are mocking her. What are you doing wasting all of this fine perfume on Jesus' feet? They've misunderstood who he was. Then do you remember the Last Supper, still in chapter 14, where Jesus speaks those very sad words, one of you will betray me. And of course, they all join in going, well, surely not I, surely not I. And one of them was Peter, who we saw two weeks ago was the person who disowned Jesus in such a blatant way. Disciples continually don't understand who Jesus was. Then we had Gethsemane, didn't we? And what happens when the crowd of soldiers come to arrest Jesus? Peter's there, his sort of close friend, and he draws a sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest and he cuts off his ear. Peter's misunderstood who Jesus is. He thinks he has to defend him against the Roman soldiers who've come to take him away. Then in Gethsemane there was um, the kiss, wasn't there? Do you remember when Judas said he would give a signal to betray Jesus. And we, we reflected on the fact that of all the different ways you could betray this man, why did he choose a kiss? That sort of intimate sign of friendship. And he chose that to betray his saviour. And the word that we looked at in, in Gethsemane when Judas went to Jesus and kissed him, it wasn't sort of like a, a greeting, like a handshake or kissing someone on a cheek. It was a prolonged, it's a word that's used for a prolonged kiss. In other words, he held Jesus very close. And we we reflected, didn't we, on what it would have been like for the whole world to kind of slow down, as it were. And we thought of the tragedy of Judas turning his back because he misunderstood who Jesus was. And then we had the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that they had one agenda that was to get Jesus and to put him under. 
And time and time again, different people testified, but their testimonies didn't agree. And you've got this terrible statement in verse 72, I think it was, where 71 people in the Jewish Sanhedrin all condemned him to death. These religious leaders who should have known different, and every single one was completely blind to who he was. Then we had Peter, you remember? Peter's denial of Jesus. He's in the courtyard, and three times he denies Jesus, just as Jesus predicted he would. And we looked at one of, the, one of the phrases where it says that Peter denied Jesus, and that word denied was a phrase that literally means he went off on one. This sort of very blatant and sustained denial. I don't even know this man, and I don't understand who he is. And then last week, you were in the, in the passage with Pilate, the Roman governor. The Sanhedrin wasn't the sort of actual trial. It was a sort of pre-trial. They passed Jesus to the Roman governor. And of course, as he looks at the evidence, he says quite emphatically, what crime has this man committed? He can't see Jesus being guilty. And yet, peer pressure. And they're vying for the blood of Jesus. So they release Barabbas and out comes Jesus. And Pilate lets him go. Familiar stories in many ways. What I'd love us to do as we look at verses 16 through to 32 is to slow right down because it's a story that we'll know, but it's easy to miss detail because it's a story we know. And the two things I'd love you to think about is what happens and to whom does it happen? The answers are very simple. We know what happens and we know to whom it happens. But think about the significance of what happens and to whom it's happening. Come with me to verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, a a Roman company would have been 600 soldiers. We don't know whether that phrase literally refers to all 600 or to a big group. But the chances are, Jesus would have been there amongst a whole heap, possibly hundreds of Roman soldiers. Think about how intimidating a place that would have been. And he was completely alone with them. And the soldiers were very professional. They weren't really interested in a trial or a fair trial. They were killing machines who enacted discipline. That's all that they cared about. And so if Pilate, the Roman governor, passed Jesus over to them, all they cared about was disciplining him. And for them, their job today was to crucify him. Uh, The Romans and the Jews would live together. Uh, The Romans hated the Jews, the Jews hated the Romans. But they kind of worked it out. And as long as the Jews sort of kept themselves themselves and didn't cause riots and so forth then the Romans were happy. They were keeping what was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But as soon as there were riots or religious disputes, then the Romans would come in and they would just squash it. Well, to the Romans, they probably just thought Jesus was a political prisoner. And notice how they therefore mock him. They probably can acknowledge, well, he's clearly some sort of king. He's the king of the Jews, as he professes. But he's a pretty pathetic king. And so they mock him, saying, you've got no power at all, Jesus. We, the Romans, have the true power. And look at how they mock him, verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, a signal that signifies royalty. They twist together a crown of thorns and place it on his head. No doubt not just resting it on his head, but driving it onto his head so that the thorns dig deep into his skull. And they begin to call out, Hail, King of the Jews. Do you see the kind of mocking tone here? Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. Now, a staff was often a symbol of authority. So perhaps here, by striking him with a a staff, it was their way of saying, we are the true authority here. You're just a king of of the Jews. We are the real power. And then there's a real sadness as you read. He falls to his knees and they pay homage to him. And when, verse 20, they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and they led him away 
to crucify him. I don't know if you've ever heard this famous quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was a 19th century um, essayist and poet, and he famously said, to be great is to be misunderstood. Now, he wasn't speaking of Jesus here, but in many ways, you look at what's happening to Jesus here. Remember I asked you the question, what's happening into whom? Isn't this the most tragic example of being misunderstood? He's being beaten and spat at and mocked as a king, and yet that's the very thing that he is. He is a king. And the great irony in this passage is Jesus could have stopped that mocking just like that. You go back to chapter 4 in Mark's Gospel and there's this great storm and these seasoned fishermen are on a boat. They think they're going to drown. And what does Jesus do? He just stands up in a boat and he says, be still. Two words. And it goes completely calm. If he wanted to at any moment destroy all of these Romans, however big their group was, If he wanted to go a different way at any moment, he could have just done it. The great irony here is that the Roman power that is going to nail him to a cross is actually nothing to Jesus. Absolutely nothing. But they desperately misunderstand him. And then carry on. Verse 21, a man from Cyrene, Simon, is coming past and they force him to carry the cross. Probably because the severity of Roman flogging would mean that Sometimes it would be impossible to physically walk, let alone carry a heavy cross. Whipping a person with strips of leather, with bits of metal and bone sewn into it, would bruise the back, would literally rip open the back to expose bone and flesh. Horrific what he's been through. And and it shows the mocking gets to an even greater level. He can't even carry himself, let alone his cross, and so someone carries it for him. And they bring Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, nobody knows exactly where Golgotha is. This is an ancient picture of where people believe Golgotha could have been. And possibly this was a place. And the reason for it is you can see in the rock, there's a sort of two caves that look rather like the eyes of a skull. And so there's a possibility that this place outside Jerusalem was Golgotha. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, This is that place today. And you can still just about make out at the bottom of the picture at the eyes but the significant thing if this was the place is if you go back to that first picture notice what's happening and where Golgotha is it's a very public place it's a highway it's on the edge of the city people walking past all the time remember this is Passover many many people gathering around Jerusalem and one of the reasons that the, the, um, the Romans crucified people outside the city on this public highway is it was acting as a sort of final deterrent to say, look what happens when you mess with Rome. And maybe he was crucified in this place, in a very public place for all to see. It says in verse 25, it was nine in the morning. Uh, Your translation might say it was the third hour. Well, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m., so the third hour was nine o'clock in the morning. So this was kind of Jerusalem rush hour. Everybody coming past, and they see Jesus hanging on a cross at nine o'clock in the morning. And we read tragically, verse 29, those who passed by, probably in their dozens, hurled insults at him. And they shake their heads saying, well, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And they've completely misunderstood who Jesus was. Interestingly, today in this place where they think Golgotha is, it's a bus stop continues to be a public place where people pass by all the time. But they've misunderstood who this man was. 
And then come to verse 31. In the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And then verse 32, those crucified with him heaped insults on him. You kind of think of all the people who might have shown some solidarity, possibly the others crucified next to him, guilty. Maybe they sort of said, well, you're with us, and I guess you're guilty like us, they'd have assumed. But no, even they find the breath to hurl insults at him. And as I read this very tragic story, I kind of see the illustrations that Mark gives of the sort of people who are mocking Jesus on a kind of spectrum. On one level, you've got these Roman soldiers, pagans, idol worshippers, Probably don't believe it, but they don't really believe in the living God, believe in false gods. The other end of the spectrum, we've got these very, very religious leaders who should have known better. And they're all mocking Jesus. And then, of course, in the middle, you've got these passers by it and these criminals. The point I think Mark is making is everybody was mocking Jesus. Everybody misunderstood who he was. <clears throat> to be great is to be misunderstood. But that means that to be a Christian, to come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus, which is what Barty is going to be publicly declaring today, and the baptism he will go through will signify something that's already happened in his heart. To be a Christian is to have our eyes opened again. Not because we're clever and we've been enlightened, but because God, by his grace, has shone his light into our heart to help us not to misunderstand who this man Jesus Christ is. Instead, to understand who he is and then to rightly respond. And when the children come back in, um, I've done this little sort of cartoon of baptism. I'm going to explain to the children what baptism is to help them um, understand what's happening with Barty. But although it's a little cartoon, it's signifying something very important. That there is you or I on the edge. And we have this dark, dirty shirt which represents the darkness of our heart, the way that we've turned our back on God. And baptism signifies dying to that old way of life. I go down under the water and I die to my sin. I die to my self-reliance. I died to living for life my way, just as the Lord Jesus Christ died to rescue us from our sin. But then as Barty, as you or I perhaps come up out of the water, notice how the shirt changes from this dark, stained, dirty shirt to a white, pure shirt. And of course, water, that great cleansing agent, has washed. Now, it's only a symbol. He's not physically getting washed. He's probably already had a shower today, but inside he's being washed and inside, it's signifying what Christ has already done for him through his spirit to give him new life. And in baptism, what it is, is repentance, which is a word that literally means to change our mind. Think of the words of Jesus at the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, when he comes and says, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And that word repent means to change your mind, to change my mind from living life my way to living my life now his way. That is what repentance means. And it's a gift from God. Now, I don't want to um, burst Barty's bubble for when he shares his testimony later, but it's a wonderful story. But there's one line in it that made me chuckle where he says in it, um, I was an absolute handful. I don't know if he's taken that out or not, but that was the original. Uh, he was just admitting to a time in his life where I think he was sort of reflecting on how he was like at home, and he just jokes, I was an absolute handful, which is hard to believe when you see the recent publication of the Christians of Sport magazine. And there's, there's yours truly there, beginning his modeling career. A bit of a joke, but here's the serious thing. Outwardly, we can look like we've got it all sorted. Outwardly, all of us, not just Barty, I'm just picking on him. Outwardly, we can look like everything is okay. But inwardly, 
before God, are we not absolutely all a handful? Inwardly, have our hearts not all turned away from the living God and gone our own way? And so as we focus on what God has done in Barty's life, actually it's a chance for all of us to focus on either what he has done in our life or to ask that serious question, do I believe that he could do that in my life? Uh, He says later on in his testimony, uh, baptism for me is my declaration that I really trust and believe and want to live my life for him. And so this outward sign in baptism is actually an inward sign or um, or a sign of an inward change within his spirit it's that inner change of mind that word repentance as he comes to put his trust in the lord jesus as you go back into this story and you see the mocking and the ridicule and the spitting and the beating and the horror of the crucifixion i wonder how it makes you feel i hope that it moves you and maybe this Easter would be a good time perhaps to come on the Thursday evening and to watch this film as we journey together and see this um, depiction of the life of Jesus, just to reflect on the horror of what he went through. But I hope too that it will give us all the space to reflect on our own hearts, to be able to say in a spiritual sense before God, I am an absolute handful. I've not loved God. I've not pleased him and I need him to forgive me. And I think this Thursday, this Friday, Easter Sunday, will be a great opportunity for us all just to reflect on the state of our own heart and to look at the incredible love of God. The love of God that doesn't look at you and love you because you're lovable, but looks at you and loves you because he is love. But just to close, I want us to focus in on verse 31 and 32 because there's a a very tragic irony in these words. Listen to the words again. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Maybe they've visibly seen and maybe they've heard. What has Jesus done for his ministry? Chapter 1, he heals a man of leprosy. No cure, but Jesus cures him. He's been saved. Chapter 2, he forgives a man's sins and then raises him from paralysis. He's saved. We've already referred to the storm on the lake. Nobody could rescue them, but he rescues the disciples from the storm. Chapter 5, he rescues this demon-possessed man. And there's a lovely phrase in chapter 5 where after Jesus has rescued him, you get this little phrase, they found him seated, dressed, and in his right mind. An amazing transformation. There's the dead girl who is literally raised from death in chapter 5. Chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus cannot see, but Jesus opens his eyes. They've heard or witnessed this, and so they mock him now. He saved others but can't save himself. And here's the irony. That is a statement that is only true of Jesus. He's the only one who can, as it were, save himself because he possesses life within himself. He's the one who gives life to all of us. And any moment he could have come down from the cross. At any moment. But the astonishing truth which proves to you and to me the incredible love he has for us is that he chose to stay. And how do we explain that? Well, if you go back in Mark's Gospel, just a little bit further, go back to chapter 8 if you have a Bible, because here we get a short story that helps reveal to us something of the kind of saviour that Jesus is. Mark chapter 8, I'll read from verse 27. Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and so he says to them, who do people say I am? 
And they respond, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to Peter, verse 29, and says, okay, Peter, but who do you say I am? Forget everyone else. I'm asking you this question. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He's understood who Jesus is. Almost. He's understood that he's a king, but the thing he hasn't understood is the kind of king. And notice how the reading goes on. Verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And that's the bit Peter doesn't like. Uh Uh-uh. My king will not die. But Jesus knows that he has to die, and he predicts his death here, and he does it again in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10. And so you get these very strong words in verse 33. When Jesus hears Peter trying to rebuke him, he says to him, get behind me, Satan. Not literally calling Peter Satan, but the influence of Satan through Peter in trying to turn Jesus away from the cross. He says, get behind me. Why? Because I am going to the cross and nothing and nobody is going to stop me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Think about what the things of men is. The things of men would be self-preservation. It's all about me preserving myself. But think about the things of God. It's the complete opposite. It's all about giving of himself. God is not a God who sits on a distant cloud, uninterested in you and me. He's a God who's got involved in the mess of our world. He made his dwelling among us. And he came into this world for one reason only, and nothing was going to stop it. That he would go to the cross so that you and me can be forgiven and have new life. Isn't it a great tragedy that these religious leaders in verse 32 of chapter 15 say, let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Then we may see and believe. If you've read your gospel, I doubt it. I doubt they would have seen and believed because how many people did see and they failed to believe because of the hardness of their hearts? And if they had seen Jesus come down, all they would have seen was a man who had the power to come down from the cross, but they'd not have seen him as their saviour. And that is why the Lord Jesus stayed on the cross, because he wasn't going to demonstrate his power by saving himself from death. He was going to demonstrate his power by going willingly to his death. So Barty, for you particularly, as I finish, we see in the story of Jesus that to be great is to be misunderstood. And we see in the Lord Jesus that true greatness doesn't come through being great ourselves, but comes through the humility of serving others. I think the irony of the Emerson quote, um, to be great is to be misunderstood, is that he was what was called a sort of individualist. He, he stressed freedom. He wanted everyone just to do their own thing, go their own way. To be great is to be misunderstood, because if you do your own thing, you might be misunderstood. He perhaps hasn't understood true greatness seen in the Lord Jesus, that he was misunderstood. But it was by being misunderstood that he came to rescue us. So, Barty, for your sake, to close, I want to take us to Philippians chapter 2. Because we see here how the Lord Jesus, as it were, died to his own desires. Died to what he wanted for himself. Christ Jesus, who in very nature was God, he was divine didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't press his rights as king. But instead, what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The significant word there is he humbled himself. Of all the people in the world who could humble themselves, he chose to humble himself. And in baptism, as you, as it were, go under the water to symbolically die to your old way of life, you are identifying with the cross how Jesus Christ died that you could be forgiven, that we could be forgiven. And so uh, an encouragement for you, Barty, is for the rest of your life, to be great isn't what you should be focused on, but to be godly is what you should be focused on, because that is where true greatness comes. But look how the reading finishes. Because death is not the end, and this is where the Christian faith triumphs. Death is not the end. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the reason the baptism is so significant is not just dying to your old way of life but it's also rising to new life. And I love that phrase in your testimony where you talked about wanting to live your whole life for him. And so as you get baptized in a moment... Know that true greatness comes through giving yourself, not through being great, but by being humble. And know that true greatness comes through resurrection, as God's Spirit continues to work in you to enable you to live and please him for the rest of your life. But just take a moment of quiet to reflect. To be great is to be misunderstood. One of the songs we sung earlier, there were some lovely lyrics that remind us, and maybe your heart can echo these words if you believe that they're true. But we sang earlier in that song, How Deep the Father's Love. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this story. Though it's a desperately sad story, we thank you that you willingly decided to stay that you chose to be misunderstood, that you chose to give up yourself, that we can be forgiven and have new life. Father, we thank you that you gave your only son, your perfect son who you had been in relationship with from before the world began for all of eternity, and yet you willingly gave him up to death on a cross to face that humility, uh, humiliation to face that mocking, to be misunderstood because you love me, you love each one who is here today. And for all those, Lord, and particularly for Barty today, we thank you for those who have put their trust in you. We thank you for the love that you have shown to help us no longer misunderstand who you are, but to see you for who you truly are, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And Father, I pray for any who may be here today who perhaps for themselves haven't yet acknowledged you as Lord and Saviour. Please would you shine your love and your light into their heart that no one would leave here rejecting the incredible love of our Saviour. Father, thank you that true greatness does come through being misunderstood and thank you that greatness for us comes through humility through bowing the knee before Jesus. The true 
Lord and Savior who no longer is dead but has risen again, who will celebrate your resurrection in a few days' time. Thank you that you are a living God. Thank you that you rule in heaven. And we pray that today as we see Barty baptized and hear his story in a few moments, that it would be a wonderful celebration of everything you've done in his life and in many of our lives. And a promise that you promise to do that in any life of a person who turns to you. Lord, we bow the knee before you, our Saviour, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.